This podcast is sponsored by Coastal Leather Supply, supplying premium leather and tools to the Australian and New Zealand leather community, created by leather workers for leather workers, specialised in vegetable tan leathers such as Buttero and many others, as well as all your leather working needs. See coastalleathersupply.com.au. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Joseph M. Leather Podcast. Today I'm with Martin from Castwell Leather Goods. Martin is traditionally trained is a traditionally trained leather craftsman based in Melbourne, Australia. He was trained in Hong Kong and focuses focuses on custom and bespoke items. He will only use the best leathers and his craftsmanship speaks for itself. Welcome Martin. Thanks Joseph. Good to be here. Uh, thanks for your thanks for your time. So uh, how did you get into leather craft? Um, initially it started after I had a bad motorcycle accident and I was I was laid up with a broken leg, didn't walk for a few months and yeah. I'd always wanted to make a knife for myself. So I, I built a forge in the backyard and I hammered out a knife out of an old rasp and that was pretty cool and finished the knife and then I, about six months later when I was walking again, I was at university in Melbourne and I was like, oh, I should make a sheath for that knife, that'd be cool. So I bought a bunch of leather from Leffler's in Melbourne and made it on the kitchen table. No stitching, just rivets and, oh, there was a bit of stitching, but it was one of those speedy stitching awls um, yeah, I know. that does a lock stitch. It's a terrible thing, but anyway, use that and um, I made this sheath and that's the first project, but I had all this leftover leather and I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll just keep making stuff. I quite enjoyed that. And then I realised I liked the leather more than I liked the knife making, so I didn't really make any more knives, and I just kept doing leather work. Yeah, what, so that's what, what got me into it. What year was that? Uh, twenty thirteen. My accident was late twenty twelve, so yeah, twenty thirteen. Yeah, because yeah, I, I started. I, I mentioned this so many times on my podcast, but like, because I started in two thousand and eighteen, and because like the videos weren't very popular. Well, they were sort of just getting popular. So how were you learning back then? Um, I think initially it could have been guys like Leotis Leather on YouTube. Um, He had a few videos up by then, I think. Um, And I remember thinking, wow, his stuff's incredible. You know, what a fantastic leather worker and all this amazing stuff that he was doing um never thinking i'd get very good at it you know it's kind of hard hard when you're starting there's a big learning curve but you know i just kept doing it because i enjoyed it and i just kept making things that i needed really and um if i looked at something i could generally figure out how it was made yeah and then recreate it myself I yeah. think a lot of a lot of people start that way, and um, like I looked at briefcases online, and I was like, "Oh, well, I'm gonna make a briefcase." So I made myself a double gusset laptop bag. That was about my third project. Wow! Okay. <laughs> hand, hand stitched it, and, and yeah. um, but I still got it. It's a ugly, heavy thing, but yeah, that's sort of what got me into it too. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. So um. So you just went into like Leffler's and just said, so like, how did you get all your tools? Did you go through that horrible stage of like picking all the wrong tools out and then having to 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I was like a a noob leather worker for years and years, right? Like yeah. Just just pottering around on the kitchen table. Never had any proper gear for years, but I'd enjoyed it. And, and you know what I what I was doing was fairly rough, but um, it was fun. And it wasn't until um, maybe. So three years of uni and I was doing leather work just as fun for fun, you know, as a hobby, never selling it or thinking of selling it. And then it, I was with a girl from Hong Kong um, and she wanted to move back to Hong Kong when her uni degree finished. At the time I was thinking, oh, I could probably start a leather work business in Hong Kong and I sort of looked into it and logistics are terrible over there for a foreigner trying to start up a business there. like. Space is at a premium. Oh, yeah, um, I can imagine it. It's just everything's a tiny little shoebox of an apartment or a house or, you know, there's no room to swing a cat. So, you know, I just, I, I thought, well, instead of actually starting a business, I'll focus more on my skills and just get better because I knew I had a lot to improve on. So I went down to um, Sham Shui Po, Nam Street, talked to a bunch of people down there and just walked around and just said, hey, I'll... I want to do it, to make a briefcase. Can anyone teach me how? And I went to a few different places before I found someone willing to teach me. And it was a guy who was actually doing it full time back then. Yeah. Um, and his name was Oscar. And he agreed to take me on basically and teach me how to make a briefcase from scratch. And wow. that was the best decision I ever made. Yeah. Oh, I, I, can, <laughs> just, I, can, I can just imagine it in Hong Kong because... You see some of their work, like Taiwan, Japanese. Like their work on Instagram is just remarkable. Yeah, definitely. So was it, like, how long did it, was was that training then? Well, from memory, it was, we would do like eight-hour days. Um, I'd go in for eight hours, we'd we'd work for those eight hours. And if there was a, a part of the project that needed stitching, Afterwards, I'd take it home, stitch it at home, and then I'd come back in like a week or two weeks, and we'd do another full day. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of how we did it, and it went for went over a period of months, um, yeah, until it was finally done. I think I he initially thought it would be like two weeks worth of days, but we went over that by maybe another week, I think. Yeah. So we, you know, we took some time, but I the amount of stuff I knowledge I gained from that was priceless. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, so when when you when you walked in the door, like what was your leather work like before you and then compared to what you when you left? Well so when I walked in, yeah I didn't know how to stitch with an awl. Yeah. Like properly. I didn't know how to saddle stitch properly. I didn't know how to cast a thread you know, how to, how to do any of that. I didn't know how to skive. I didn't know how to skive anything. I didn't even know what skiving was. I was just using whatever leather I had and whatever thickness it was. Yeah. That was, that was it. Um, all sorts of different things, lining things and um, structure to, to, you know, give different properties to different parts of the bag and, Mm-hmm. Um, how to cut straight, how to stitch straight, how to do it, all that sort of stuff. 
yeah. was just drilled into me and he was really strict. Um, how to prepare surfaces for gluing. Like wow. I see so many people That's who amazing. don't do it properly um, because I was doing it and then he'd look at it and go, nah, again. And I'd, mm -hmm. I'd start again and you know, scratch the surface and he'd like, nah, again. And I'd do it again <laughs> like, until it, it, it was never good enough until he was happy and then we'd you know, go from there. So that sort of taught me a pretty strict way yeah. of approaching it. That's awesome. Like, I, I just like, my head's just like going like, wow, okay. So, because I was, because I, I was struggling recently with, um, like, the, when I was using bridal leather, gluing a flesh side to a... Um, grain side. Yeah, grain side. It would come off, like, quite easily. And because I, I was using a scratch hole to scratch it, and that wasn't doing it. But then I, I got, like, a smile, because I got two skiving blades. One of them's completely trash, because I never, like, didn't, didn't know you had to sharpen it and <laughs> when, you, when you get the thing. So I managed to, like, just use that to like one of the corners to scratch off the the top grain. Is that how you traditionally do it or? As, there's all sorts of different ways you can do it. Okay. Um, he taught me to use a disposable like razor, uh, like box cutter. Yeah. And then just scrape it 90 degrees to the, to the surface and just scratch, scratch, scratch until the surface is worn through. Um, because what you're trying to get is a rough surface for glue to penetrate. Yeah. You've got a smooth smooth surface like English bridal, nothing's going to bond to it. Yeah. No matter how good your glue is, nothing will bond. So you yeah. need glue penetration. And however you achieve that, you know, there's millions of ways to achieve it. Sandpaper yeah. and files or um, scratch alls generally don't do a great job because they're not sharp enough. They're not actually – they're just – laying like grooves without removing like without yeah. scratching scratch yeah. through the surface yeah some, some leathers will scratch with a scratch all but a lot don't so yeah, yeah. you just gotta really rough it up and some people are afraid to get it really rough but you've mm -hmm. got to actually get into it yeah is with skiving as well is um because i found it split english bridle is really hard to skive yeah. Um, is like when you when you are skiving, should it be easy to skive, or should it like is if it's hard to skive, is that the leather or is that the blade? If it's hard to skive, you're nice too blunt. Okay. And yeah. I wish I knew that earlier. Yes, I'm and really realizing that now. So basically, if I taught like a a sharpening class, everyone's leather work would improve mm -hmm. dramatic dramatically overnight because it's just, it's night and day from just using a, uh, you know, a diamond, a Japanese stone or whatever to put an edge on and then skiving, it'll go dull in five skives and then you've got to start again. But yeah. if you're not getting that razor sharp edge, your skives are going to be terrible anyway. So you, you basically need to get really good at sharpening, really good at stropping and do tons of research on that. And once you've got a good strop set up where you can quickly touch up your knife again, because you need to be doing it, like you do one skive, two skives maybe, back to the strop. 
Like that's how often you need to do it. Yeah, okay. You really, really need to keep it razor sharp because if the leather's trying to move underneath the skive, if it's trying to push the leather along without cutting it, you, your skiving knife's too, too dull. Yeah. Is it better to do it on the flesh side or the top grain side? Because I've seen people say flesh side and then I think I've seen people do like the top grain. Is there a difference between the two? There is. Um, top grain is what you'd want to finish on. Okay. So flesh side is like a rougher surface, so it's going to give a rougher strop. A fine fine surface is the surface of the leather, and so that's going to give a finer strop, yeah. basically. Um, okay. But in my opinion, the best surface isn't leather anyway. It's denim. So okay. just a piece of denim. Um, yeah. I'll give you I'll give you the hot tip, right? If you if you want your sharpening to be amazing, just get some Autosol metal polishing compound, mm-hmm. rub that into a strip of denim, and hang it. Don't put it on the bench. Hang it in midair. So clamp it down at one end, and do at least 30 strops on each side of your blade with a light pressure. You're not pushing okay. hard. If you, you know, if you taped down the end of the denim to the bench and you push so hard that the tape comes off the bench, you're pushing too hard. So just gentle strops, 30 strops each side, denim strop, metal, metal polishing compound. You're going to, you're not, you're not going to know yourself. Yeah. So if you, that's just one tip. If you do that, your, your blades will be razors. Yeah. No matter how you start the sharpening before that, like as long as it's got an edge before that, you can basically just go to that and it'll get it razor sharp. How long does it take until you have to use a stone? Like how long until? Oh, oh, I wouldn't use a stone unless it's oh. unless you unless you're using the strop and it's still not getting sharp. That means your edge is actually there's something wrong with your edge. Okay. Then I'd go to back to a stone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So stone shouldn't even enter into your mind pretty much when you're. No. No. Because okay, stones good. are just removing tons of steel. Yeah. Um. Strops are still removing steel, but very little. Yeah. And you don't want to be doing too much or you're just going to wear your knives away. Yeah. And it's a waste of a knife. So what's a, what's a metal compound? So Autosol. Okay, Autosol. Can you just get that from Bunnings or something? Yeah, just Bunnings. Okay. Just buy the paste, rub it into the into the denim, bang, bang. All my jeans will be cut up tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Because, well, I've done a ton, ton of research on it anyway, but basically Autosol's got big, chunk, chunky particles in it, and the large particles, instead of hitting the blade, they just get pushed into the weave of the denim. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're actually not going to give you a poor edge because they're actually just getting pushed out of the way. Okay. Whereas if you put it on a surface like leather, it would actually damage your edge. Okay. So you have to make sure it's quiet, the, the lenum's denim's quite pulled. So it's tight. Oh, yeah, you pull, to... you're pulling it, but not too tight, because like I said, if you okay, take it yeah. to the bench yeah. um, and you're pulling that hard that it um, came off the tape, you're pulling okay. too hard or you're pushing too hard with a knife. So just gentle stro- gentle strokes. Um, actually, I might ask you about that. So the awls, because I was, I was stitching a dog collar, I mean a dog lead, because it's like eight millimetres of leather it has to go through, and it's quite yep. like tough. And of course, it's a bit of a cheap awl. Is is it worth getting a better awl? Just sharpen awl. your awl. 
It's saying, yeah, how do you sharpen it? Is it the it's same still a, It's still a knife. It's just a mini knife. Yeah. Um, you've got to get it razor sharp, just like you've got to get a knife. Okay. Um, it'll make your life way easier. Um, put it on the stone, put it on the angle, so that it'll be a rough oh, diamond. Yeah. It'll be a rough diamond shape, right? So you've yeah, got, so you got four edges to sharpen then. Yeah, okay. And just do that. Work your way around and do the same thing with the strop. Okay. Um, and then the test for an awl is you ha hold a piece of like pig skin or something light and soft and then poke the awl into it. And if it, and it's just hanging, right? It should just poke straight through the skin. Wow, okay. That's how sharp you want it. Okay. I'll, I'll stitch a 18 millimeter thick knife sheath with a with an awl and not do reverse pricking. I'll just yeah. all straight through. Wow. Just because it's sharp. Is it does it go through easily? Yep. Wow, okay, that's awesome. even even it's solid veg tan, eighteen mil thick, if it's sharp it'll just push straight through. So why wouldn't you why would you use a stone for that but not a you use a stone to get the geometry right and okay, then you finish yeah. with the strop. Okay, yeah. Once it's to that geometry point, you wouldn't sharpen it again. You just keep it on the strop. Yeah, yeah, it. that's right. Okay. Keep it on the strop. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. could do it on a denim strop or a leather strop or whatever, but you, that's how you maintain an edge is on the strops. Yeah. So can yeah. you can you buy all blades already sharp? Um, Barry King alls are generally what I use, and they come quite sharp, but they're never that sharp. Okay. I, I still always touch them up. But you wouldn't have to put them on a stone. You could just... Um, I would still put them on a stone, I think, okay. just to get the geometry in there yeah. that I like. Cause, okay. you know, yeah. So you, you moved back to Australia, and yeah. how long was that training, training all up again, sorry? Uh, I think it was over the period of June to September. Okay. So then you come back to Australia, and then you want to start your own business yeah i mean look i've got i got a lot of great experience out of that course but i wasn't a leather worker you know i was i was a guy who knew how to make a certain type of briefcase um and had decent or oh, some good developing hand skills basically that's what it was at the time so I, you know i still didn't have the real confidence that i could be a professional leather worker or do it full time or anything or actually sell anything because I still had never sold anything um, so I was like oh well, what else can I do so I started pilot training and um, that's alright yeah so I did that for I don't know a few months full time just flying every day and then um, at one point I was just like yeah, I don't know. I've got a. I realised I would have to spend about another hundred grand to be a wow. qualified airline pilot, where you actually start making a de decent living, mm -hmm. um, and and plus another three years of work. It's just too hard. I, and I'm not that into being a pilot, <laughs> so I was just like, so I bit the bullet, and that's when I was like, all right, I started looking for workshop spaces, and I just found a workshop and started doing leather work full time just bang bang wow were you flying planes or helicopters uh just planes yeah yeah little archer 
yeah. single engine. Wow. So, was there? Were you originally in this niche market, like, or were you? No, no, not at all. So I started off probably like a lot of people, right? Where I thought I need to design a wallet that's going to blow everyone's minds. <laughs> And I'm going to market it and I'm going to have a cool logo and I'm going to do all this sort of stuff. And that's what I sort of came in like, which is what most people sort of think. They think, oh, I need a cool logo and then I need cool marketing and I need a cool design for a wallet that no one's ever thought of with some cool angles and shapes. And that's what I was doing. And you realize real soon that you're up against about a million other people doing exactly the same thing yeah. and no one cares. <laughs> like, yeah, just, you know, it's like crumbling my dreams. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's yeah. just sort of the way it goes. You know, yeah. Just, you, you realize it pr- pretty quickly as well. Like you, there's so many, there's so many buy folds and bill folds and minimalist yeah. wallets that you can sort of, the wheels being done much yeah 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 that's right yeah no matter how original you think you are you're not uh, so i came into the mindset oh i've got to do everything as fast as i can so what's the fastest way i can do this and my workshop was a shared works workshop and we had a laser cutter and it could engrave and cut and so i thought all right taught myself adobe illustrator and then i was like designing wallets with all the stitch holes already on there and i was lasering out the whole wallet with the stitch holes cut, you know, so I could just glue it up and stitch straight through these stitch holes and stuff. And they were disgusting, terrible wallets, mm-hmm. you know, and they stunk like burnt hair because of the lasering. Uh, I never sold one of them, but it was all my, like, testing and prototyping. And then I started, I don't know how it really happened, but I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to start making proper wallets and I'm not going to use the computer to design it. Um, and I'm just going to start, you know, making higher quality stuff. Um, and it was a gradual, it was a really gradual change, like a gradual change in mindset. And my skills very gradually got better and better, but I sort of forced myself over time to say, look, everything I do has got to be better than the last thing I did. And yeah. just, I kept, I kept working at that. And that's still probably my underlying, um, sort of drive. Yeah. Is that I, I need to keep getting better because the best thing I've ever made in three months, I want to look back at that and think, Oh, could have done way better. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's sort of how I approach it. Yeah. Is that what's what's something I could have done better? What's something I could improve on? How can I make it a bit more technical? Um, and then you run into problems of who's going to pay for that um, because you get to a ceiling where, all right, no one's going to actually spend the money. <laughs> yeah. If, if you want to take three weeks to make a bag, mm-hmm. you're going to have to charge a fair bit to make any money out of it. Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, it's quite, it's like two, two sides of the spectrum and it's like the, because obviously like 
most crafts these days. Like, usually when you get popular, you mechanic, me- mechanic, <laughs> mechanic, what is it? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I, can't. I can say the word, but I can't say the word for some reason. You get machines to do it because obviously your products go up. And yeah. then you mechanise. Yeah, you mechanise things. Yeah. It's it's very rare to be able to um, try and, even though when you get popular, try and keep it like how you did it in the past. Yeah. Um, yeah, true. Yeah it's hard to slow down rather than speed up the process. So, and that's the thing, because when you decide to go slower, and like you said, if you're, if it's, if you're going slower, you have to obviously charge people more for it. Yeah. It's a very niche market. Like, yep. did you, how much confidence did you have, especially in the, in the Australian market, so to speak, like, um, well, yeah, well, that's the thing, like, because, that market didn't really exist three years ago when I started. Um, there was no no one really offering luxury leather goods in Australia. Not that I know of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was no like proper luxury stuff being offered. So I, you know, obviously thought there was no market for it. But some of my clients started approaching me from like the financial services and um, things like that who were wealthy and wanted the best. And then I started to see, I was like, oh, okay. I, I charged him, you know, this much for the briefcase, but he didn't blink when I told him how much it was. You yeah. know? And you, then you, you sort of get these little glimpses like there's actually, there is a market for higher end products in australia you just got to find them yeah and that was my problem initially is was was finding these people to actually spend the money and a lot of it is to do with trust and if you don't have a big body of work behind you no one's going to trust you to do their their big project you know their, yeah. their dream project yeah um, and that's what's taken three years to develop you know is getting the body of work getting the photos taken that show your quality of work and yeah. sort of proving to them that you're, you're worth the investment. Yeah, because you have to, if you sell a product for two grand, it has to be worth two grand. Like yeah, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's... For sure, yeah. And But, yeah, I was always underselling myself as well, like underselling my products, yeah. like selling them for too cheap, but I was happy that I could actually get them out there I'd take lots of good photos and then the next time I sold them it would be for a lot more and then mm-hmm. the next time it would be a lot more and eventually it's at the point where I can actually make money from them yeah um, or they're profitable at least so what what year was that when you opened up uh, I think it was October 2017 okay really easy to underestimate how much money setting up a decent workspace is you know i spent a lot of money and i wasted a lot of money too and um, unfortunately i got ripped off too by one guy i bought i wanted a sewing machine and a splitter and um he sent me the sewing machine and kept the money for the splitter oh wow okay so i lost three and a half grand and he deleted his number and went into hiding in goulburn i know him i know who he is but I, (laughs) i can't find him Oh, okay. 
So Splitter was that just for like uh, like those twenty? It was a um, yeah. It was a it was a cowboy brand um, flat knife uh, splitter with an electric motor. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, from what I've heard since they're not even that great anyway. They they work well if you're splitting five mil leather down to three mil, but it would never do what I had wanted it for, which was splitting three mil down to one mil. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, that was so, annoying. So, you know, you come across these sort of hiccups. Yeah, three and a half grand. Um, along the way, and or like I was saying to you before we started, I spent all that money on KS Blade tools yeah. and um, rarely use them now. Yeah. Because you just sort of... Yeah, I'm, I'm keen to hear your opinion on, on tools. Yeah. Uh, like, so what do you use to cut leather? Do you use like a, a round knife or just your what? standard razor blade? Um, I just use the snap-off um, blade uh, box cutter. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think the brand I use is NT Cutter. It's just got a metal handle and yeah. um, the blades are sharp out of the box and I can just keep snapping them off. Yeah. For, for your daily cutting needs, that's yeah. the best. And you, you, you're not spending hours every day sharpening, resharpening a knife, like um, yeah. the, uh, what, what do they call it, the indispensable knife. Yeah. Um, I've got one, but I never use it because oh. I don't want to have to resharpen it all the time. Yeah, that thing, it's a nice looking knife though. I like it. It's like the, sticks all yeah, the way through. It's great for Instagram photos. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what they're for. I think I got sucked in by the marketing. Yeah. Take a yeah. picture of your your box cutter next to uh, your yeah, that's right. Your box cutter doesn't look doesn't look so. Um, can you strop those the razor blades or anything steel can be stropped? Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If matter. you want, you you can make a scalpel blade last a very long time if you strop it. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the disposable, the snap off blades. But the problem is those blades actually, the tips are so fine they snap off. Mm-hmm. And once the tip is snapped off, you're not going to get a clean cut, so you might as well just snap yeah. off that bit. Start again. Do you have to go horizontal all the way along? Because you're pretty much just using that little tip to cut, or do you have to just sharpen the? Do you just drop the little tip? Yeah, you just drop the tip. Yeah. Okay, that's handy. Um, so the the leather that you use, yeah, you use a variety. I thought you had like stingray. <laughs> I don't even know how much leather I've got in my workshop because I'm always finding stuff that I forgot about. Yeah. Because I do custom work only. Yeah. Basically, basically I, for every different project, I pretty much have to order a new hide or multiple hides. Yeah. So I've got leftovers from so many jobs. Plus, I'm always, when I'm ordering as well, I'm like, well, to save shipping, I might as well order a couple extra colors and see what they're like or order yeah. a few different things. So. Yeah, I've got like a menagerie of leather. Was there was there a reason why you decided to do custom leather as opposed to having your own line of Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um when you make your own products to sell to someone else, you have to spend time marketing it and I'm no good at it. So when you make custom, the item's already sold before you've made it. Mm-hmm. And then your job's done. Yeah, it's like cutting out half my work. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it, and the the other main inter- main reason is it's interesting. 
Mm. You know, I, I go mad if I have to make the same thing twice in a row. Yeah. Like, if I had to make two wallets exactly the same, I'd be so bored. I just couldn't stand it. Or if I had to remake the same design of wallet again and again, or same yeah. anything. So I love the variety that I get to do. Like, I'll, I'll do a knife sheath one day and a bag the next day and a watch strap the next day and a, then yeah. a wallet. And then there, every single one is different. And every single one has different thread or different specs requested by the client or yeah and it pushes you to become a better leather worker yeah that's true much, much faster as well yeah because yeah, if you just repeat the same thing again and again you're not going to improve mm-hmm. you will yeah. you will within the specs of that project yeah but but you won't sort of expand your horizons yeah i like those those knife sheets that you did recently and yep. you had that video where you're um stitching it like you just there's no there's no you're not reverse pricking you just see it straight (laughs) just it's practice yeah yeah it's practice um but i guess with a sharper blade would make it so much easier though yeah definitely get get yourself a sharp all blade and you're 90 percent better off yeah um the rest of it is all it's like practicing a golf swing sort of thing yeah if if it's repeatable you'll get repeatable results and the whole goal of stitching is to have a neat back stitch as well yeah if you've got a repeatable movement of your arm with the same muscles doing the same thing every time it's going to be coming out the same way every time so as long as your front holes are straight your back holes will be too yeah in regards to custom work for example i remember remember someone came to me i gave him the like price for it but by the time i spent money like because i had to buy the full hide and instantly i buy the hide and i'm in the negatives is that yeah. a, a recent? Is that an? Um, is that an occurrence with you with your custom work? Like you, you're spending more on the hide as opposed to what you're selling it for. Um. Generally, no. Okay. Um, it would have to be a very expensive hide, yeah. like crocodile, for example. Um, that's a hard one because you know you might pay twelve hundred bucks for a skin just to make one wallet, um, you're not going to recuperate 1200 bucks of materials for the croc mm-hmm. on top of the cost of the wallet, but you're going to have to try and get most of it back for sure. Yeah. Um, and you're going to have to let the client know and say, look, this is my pricing. You know, this is how expensive croc is. It's, it's going to cost a lot and you're going to have to be willing to pay for it because once I've cut a wallet out of this croc skin, there's not a lot left to use. Um, so you're going to be paying for most of the skin and just be honest with them and yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll do better that way. Okay. So it's, it's easier to, um, yeah. Cause like, I think with, with custom work, a lot of us, it's like, we, we just focus on the, like the product we make it, but it's just like the, the full hide that doesn't come into it. I heard someone. I heard someone say that you should charge for the full hide if you're bringing it in. Is that like? Is that a correct no. thing to do? I, I don't know. It feels like it's wrong. I would feel pretty, pretty rough charging someone for a whole hide if they were just getting a wallet out of it. Yeah. Um, I'm more than likely going to reuse that hide for another wallet, and once I've got it, once I've got it in my workshop, I'll have clients come in 
to look through my leathers mm-hmm. for various for various products, they'll be looking at those hides and go, "Oh, that's nice. I'll yeah. have that." Okay. So yeah, it'll get used. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and doing custom work, and I I do a lot of like knife sheaths, right? So I've got this range of leather in my workshop now that I I, I can just rummage through and pick something out that works for whatever colour knife I've got and yeah. it's good to have that range around when you're doing that sort of work but yeah I understand what you mean if you're just doing wallets or something like that yeah. and someone someone wants a pink wallet or something and you got to order this terrible colour leather in to make a small item for that sort of thing maybe you would consider saying hey for that yeah, you're going yeah. to have to pay extra yeah um what what's that leather that you were using for that that black knife sheath? Is it bridal um, leather or? No, it's just a bit of um. It's from Leffler's. Okay. Tuscan double shoulder, I think they call it. Yeah. Or is, um... it's just one of their double shoulders. Just yeah. The standard Italian. It would be very, very little different to Buttero. Yeah. A little bit firmer. Yeah, because I, I like the firmer leather, and I got some buttero, but it scratches quite easily. Yeah, I heard. So I'm trying to. I was thinking of going to Pueblo, just to sort of mix Pueblo's it up. just buttero with. It's had a wire brush go over it, isn't it? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty pre- sure. Yeah, a wire brush going through. Yeah, because I, I. Yeah, I um. So because I got some, I bought some Cedric bridal leather from Rocky yep. Mountain, and I got it split down, and I think I sort of got the wallet, like here, so I made this, like, long wallet, and I made, like, another one as well, but I think I got it split down to 1.2 mil, but yep. when I when I folded it, oh, you can't see it on this one, but the one I made for, like, my mum, it started cracking, like, yep. all along the backside, and because yep. I, put, I put water on this one, and then folded it, but as I did it, it, like, it ruined, like, all that. Is um is bridal leather practical for long wallets or not? I wouldn't use bridal for a wallet in general. Okay. Um, that's just my thing, because probably for what you're talking about is, um, bridles are English bridles meant to be, for making bridles. It's meant mm-hmm. to be meant to be thick and strong and and weather resistant, weatherproof. Yeah. Um, it doesn't bend in a tight radius. Yeah. Because of because of all those surface treatment processes, um, you can split it, like the, the end of a belt. You can taper it down to maybe two mil. Yeah. For for bending around the buckle. But going thinner than that, yeah, you're risking cracking. Yeah. Um, Sedgwick's so, not a particularly great bridle either. I don't think. Um, of course. <laughs> wow. Well, I've had yeah. a few different ones, and Cedric's one of my least favourites. Yeah, okay. The, the the die job barely penetrates the top and bottom. It is a very it is a very thin like, yeah. layer. Like, yeah, it's, like it's, you can get ones that are almost full aniline, like almost all the way is penetrated. Yeah. With a die, and that's a much better quality leather. And that wouldn't that wouldn't end either. I mean, that wouldn't, that, that wouldn't crack on bending if it's dyed all the way through. Well, it's 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 where it's not whether the dye's gone through; it's whether the oils and things have penetrated. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think English bridle in general is just not meant to be 
folded in a really tight rate tight radius. How would Plebo Plebo Pueblo? Yeah, Pueblo. how would that fold? Because I'm thinking of getting some, but please don't destroy my dreams with that as well. No, 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 no. I mean, it's just exact yeah. same as butter. It does scratch easily though. Um, well, it's already scratched because they've run run a wire brush over it, but okay. um, yeah, it'll scratch just as easy as any other veg tan. Okay. So, what's your opinion on Wicked and Craig? Never, never used it. Okay. I've used it. The only thing I don't like about it is it doesn't have that. Like I like the the shine on the Cedric. Um Okay. Yeah. Uh, what about Jay? That Baker's? Because I was thinking of going to them to get some. It'd be the same. I've never heard of them. You'd have, okay. Um, okay. Uh, okay. No, fair enough. So like um. What would you recommend making belts out of then? English bridle. Okay. Are Cedric's alright for that? Yeah, I mean I make belts out of Cedric. Okay. Um, yeah, I've got a, I've got a hide in there at the moment, black. Yeah. A yeah. whole hide of English bridle, Cedric, yeah. and it okay. makes a good belt. Yeah. But because of the, um, the die doesn't penetrate, you need to make sure you get a good die job on the edges. Yeah. Yeah. That um that kangaroo that you use, that's from Leftlers, isn't it? Uh no, I use straight oh. from Packers. Okay. Um, it's their what they call it their milled full aniline. Yeah, I'm quite like I remember because when I first started, I was using kangaroo leather, hmm. and I sort of struggled to sell some. Yeah. Is it actually is it as popular as a um is it a popular leather kangaroo? It's probably my most used leather Okay. of all leathers. Like, if I'm going to recommend something to someone, and a lot of people will take my recommendation, I'll recommend kangaroo. Yeah. Because it's the it's got the highest tensile strength of any leather in the world. Yeah. For its thickness, um, and if you're making wallets that are thin, you want as you want them to be as strong as possible. You don't want them coming back ripped mm-hmm. or torn. And I've split. I've split some high quality veg tan from Italy down thin enough to make wallets and then I've had it just tear. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to repeat that and I know kangaroo doesn't tear at those thicknesses so I'm just going to use kangaroo. Look, yeah. It might not be as luxurious looking but it sure wears well and mm-hmm. it lasts and lasts and lasts. So, I mean, I'm always going to be happy with that and it skies beautifully, it stitches beautifully. Yeah. I mean, what more could you want? Yeah. And we're lucky in Australia that we've got access to rue everywhere. You know, yeah. It's, it's cheap. For overseas people, it's not cheap. Yeah. That's why they use goat a bit more because it's like a sort of comparable leather. Yeah. I know, like, it's a sort of... Some colours in goat look nice, but then some don't look quite nice in goat because, like, the, tech, the, the texture. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, okay. some colours too are like fully pigmented as well. Yeah, Pig- pigmented leather doesn't look great in my opinion. Yeah. So if if yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to make a wallet out or a long wallet out of bridle. So even because I was thinking of if I if I split it to like 0.8 of a mil, that'd just be way too thin for a bridle to to. Yeah, I mean, I would think so because. Yeah. You got to think, right? You're talking about a 
a fully grown cow mm-hmm. that they killed him to to make English bridle. You've got the the top layer of the leather is called the grain, and then under that you've got the corium, which is where all the strength is. And the the older the animal, the thicker the grain section. And then, so if you split that leather right down to 0.8 mil, you're only left with grain. And yeah. the grain is actually nowhere near as strong as the corium. Yeah. And so you've just removed the strongest part of the leather. Yeah. So you've actually got a, you, you're left with a fairly weak leather if you're okay. splitting that thin. Yeah. Um, okay, so what's your favourite item to make? Doing... Favourite item to make? Yeah. Um, I'd probably say briefcase. Yeah. I mean, I love briefcases in general. They're just a beautiful item. Yes. Yeah, and it's like it's like one of those things that just tickles me. I, you know, I love them. And um, because I was trained in the way of making a double gusset briefcase, I'm confident, and I think confidence is where a lot of enjoyment comes from. Mm-hmm. When you can approach something without fear, you, yeah. you know exactly what you got to do. Um, so yeah, briefcases are great. They're a big project though, and yeah. They normally take me about two weeks wow. to make. And that's all hand-stitched as well. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. about, oh, I'm probably a bit faster now, but normally about 30 hours of hand-stitching. That's all right. That's good. Yeah. Because yeah, I want to I make a briefcase in the future. Like, what tips do you recommend because you'd be using bridal leather, I assume, for a briefcase. I never no. used it. No, you no. never used it. Okay. No, no. Because, I mean, I can't get split. Well, I, I don't know where you're getting your English bridal split, but I don't know of a service that splits it um, Rock, unless Rocky. you're ordering it from overseas. Yeah, Rocky Mountain. Split. Uh, I don't think English bridal is any better for briefcases than just good Italian veg tan. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I stiffen my leather anyway, so I don't need stiff English bridle. Yeah. And then triple gussets, uh, double gussets, triple gussets, whatever, they have to have some really tight folds for the accordion gusset section. And English bridle's not going to bend in those points. Um, like you're talking about the cracking, they would absolutely crack yeah. um, for the accordion gussets. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't want that surface treatment like English bridle. You want um, just the natural grain of a proper full aniline veg tan. So what's a full aniline? Full aniline is yeah. the term for struck through dyeing. Okay, yeah. So you can get semi-aniline, which is struck through dye, plus they've done a bit of pigment pigmenting on the surface to even out the colour of the surface of the leather. Yeah. But full aniline generally means they've just dyed it all the way through and left the surface un- unpigmented. So there's no like paint or anything they've put on the top. It's just yeah. the natural surface. Okay. And Is... generally it's the best leather that gets that treatment. Okay. So with, um, uh, well, how thick do you have to go for those briefcases? Um, well, I'm making one next week, 
a miniature version. So mm-hmm. I'm doing a, a handbag course, but the guy wanted to make a briefcase. And I said, well, it's going to be a bit hard to make it in a week because I can't even make one in two weeks. Yeah. So we miniaturized it into a lady's handbag design, but it's got all the same design elements of a briefcase. Mm-hmm. So I, um, for, that, for that leather, I, I split it to all different thicknesses for different panels. Um, so the, the front panels are like 2.5, the gussets, I can't remember exactly, 1.3. There's linings and then you've got the straps and then you've got all these other parts, but basically, and the zip dividers. and So every different panel has a different thickness for a different purpose pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Are you glad you learned from briefcases first? Because I, I feel like yeah. if you learn such a high skill um, product... Yeah. <laughs> to work your way back is so much more easier as to work your way up. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm glad I sort of jumped in the deep end with that instead yeah. of just doing, going, oh, let's make a wallet or something yeah. like that. Because I'm, I'm, yeah, I've been able to adapt those skills to so many different applications. Yeah. And then, you know, things come up all the time and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can use that little skill that I learnt and, um, apply it to whatever. Um, mm-hmm. It's great. Definitely glad I yeah. did it that way. And I, I would encourage other people to do it too. So how, how um, with that, with the gussets, because um, I remember I've seen people, they've, like you have the gusset and they sort of, it's just two pieces for each gusset where they, they make like a sort of a square. Whereas your ones, with your ones, is it just like you have your gusset and then you get that long piece of leather and you sort of fold it around and stitch it? Is that how? Is that? It's hard to understand what you're saying without, yeah, um, picturing it or seeing it. Okay. Um, but basically, my gussets for for my traditional briefcases, it's a three piece gusset. Yeah. So there's a base piece and then two side pieces that are stitched together, and then glued onto the front panels. Um, yeah, and there's a reason for that rather than doing it as one continuous piece um, and it's it's to do with the square edge corners on the base mm-hmm. but it's a bit too complex to sort of go into yeah. but basically the, the triple piece allows you to add a little bit of extra leather at that seam mm-hmm. that will will actually go right into the corner of that square profile really yeah. neatly whereas if it's just one continuous piece it tries to curve around that square corner yeah and it doesn't look great yeah like is there a way to learn um is there like yeah. any books well, at all come or? and come and study with me one day yeah well, <laughs> when i start running courses yeah well definitely yeah when i heard about it i was like yeah that'd be a good idea actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i'm planning on oh it's so much work trying to get it together uh this sort of teaching thing. Yeah. But I do, I do want to do like one-on-one, maybe one-on-two classes in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, my workshop's pretty small. I can't accommodate more than that. But I'd love to teach some people who are willing to learn those sort of skills. How long would it, how long does it take to, like if, yeah, how long would it take to actually learn that briefcase, like a briefcase? 
an entire briefcase from scratch. Yeah. Um, well, it takes me two weeks to make one myself, and that's not teaching. Wow, okay. So, <laughs> hopefully that gives you an idea. Yeah. No, that's all right. Um, uh, yeah, and that's me working pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's amazing that there's actually someone in Australia that actually has that skill. Because when I saw your stuff, I was like, wow, someone in Australia actually makes this sort of stuff. It's yeah, I guess that's cool. As long as, I don't know, I don't think it's that good, but thank you. <laughs> There's plenty better out there. Yeah, than me. But um, yeah, I try my best. When you line a brief, when you line a briefcase, do you do you glue the whole panel, or do you just glue the outside of the panels on, like the lining? It depends on the situation. Okay. Um, depends on how that leather's bending. Yeah. Um, whether it's convex, concave, flat, weight-bearing, mm-hmm. um, if it's got pockets, um, heaps of different factors, basically. So, yes and no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you can, you can glue them around the edges or you can do them. So many different ways to do it. But basically, my briefcases are, some of the panels are glued fully, some of them are hanging, some of them are... Yeah, some of them have pockets and stuff stitched to them, so they need to be glued down. Yeah. With a, with yeah. your tote bag, do they? Do you have to glue? Um, can you just do like a hanging lining? Um, or is I it? I think I oh, know the one you're talking about, and yeah, that's just a hanging lining, so that's just stitched around the top. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, so in that situation, you've got the hanging lining gives you room to put a hidden zip pocket in there where oh, the zip yeah. pouch can hang behind the lining yeah. and won't print on the outside of the bag. Yeah. Okay. Um, with your... And you put a metal bar across the top of the... Briefcase. Yeah. You yep. can just get those from like Bunnings. It's just like a... Uh, I'll just order them online. It's just spring steel. Okay. You yeah. can use aluminium. You can use brass. You can use whatever, but... I like spring steel because it's already hardened. Um, you can buy it in flat bar, very thin, so it doesn't. It's not a thick profile. Yeah. And if it bends, it springs back to its flat straight away. Whereas oh, okay, if you did yeah. brass and it got bent, it stays bent. Yeah. Um, same with aluminium. So you just want something that can return to center. So plastic even will return to center to a degree, mm-hmm. but I would rather spring steel yeah I wouldn't use plastic does that does it have to be thick no I think I use 0.5 mil that's pretty thin okay yep yep so what you're doing with this the um the the steel runner it basically stops because you if you're hanging onto the handle every day the the handle's trying to bend up towards the handle Mm-hmm. The, the, sorry, the flap is trying to bend up towards the handle and yeah. you're just preventing that by having that steel runner. If you didn't put that in there, you get a saggy bag Yeah. over time. Yeah. Yeah, so like you said, that panel took two days to do that. That's, uh, yeah, that's just remarkable. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, so I was making that bag. You're talking about the latest um, briefcase I did mm-hmm. or academics bag or whatever. It's like the yeah, most recent Instagram. Yeah, the natural veg tan triple gusset. 
And um, so the inside of the front panel, he wanted, the client wanted two pockets large enough to fit phones and wallets, as well as three fountain pen uh, sleeves. Mm-hmm. And originally it was just going to be three loops, open, open top, open bottom. And they don't take long at all. But then uh, he changed his mind and said, no, I want them enclosed on the bottom. And so I'd never done that before. So I had to basically come up with an entire prototype that oh, yeah. day yeah. on the spot, make it. And it had to fit three different diameter pens exactly. So, you know, I had to make a, a pattern from scratch. And that's where most of the time went. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was two days by the time I finished that and done the other two pockets. Have and, you, yeah, you that's fin- just the way it is with custom work. <laughs> yeah. Have you finished the... Um that bag yeah yeah the finished photos are up and that's been sent out to oh, him yeah. Your panel yep wow. it took three weeks all up yes well yeah so that's italian nice. yeah. yeah yeah it's um la perla azura tannery that leather it's really really nice stuff yeah how did you like educate yourself on so much leather it's Oh, I didn't. That was um, Jake from Burkworks just sent me a message out of the blue and said, hey, I'm doing an order from this tannery. Do you want some? And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'd never heard of them. And I ordered the, I ordered three different hides in three different thicknesses. Yeah. In the natural. And I bought a bunch of other colors for knife sheaths as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, it turns out it's awesome stuff. Really, really nice. Although I did get... I bought a grey hide and I didn't realise it would be pigmented and it's no good. It just looks pretty bad. It's great quality leather underneath, but the surface doesn't look great. So what do you mean by pigmented? So it's like a, um, I don't know what it actually is, but it's like an acrylic paint that spray on the surface. Oh, okay, yeah. So if you marked it or, so if you used it as a wallet, for example, all your wear points, that would come off. Yeah. It'd look like the paint's worn off something. Yeah. Whereas something with dye that goes all the way through, like buttero, when you use that and wear it, it just gets shiny and looks nice. Yeah. It doesn't have a surface treatment to wear off. Yeah. Yeah, that. that. So what what tannery was that from? La Perla Azura. Okay. So it means the blue pearl, I think, in Italian. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's such a it's like a needle in a haystack when you're trying to find leather. Pretty much, like you got your like your main supply, like different. Buyers. It's it's half the work of being in custom leather. Yeah, he's trying to find new suppliers, figure out what's good, what's not, and you got to spend and waste a lot of money figuring out what's good. And... Yeah, but if you if you've got some basics like that, you know that work and you can use for most products, you're pretty good. Like packers for kangaroo or birds all for kangaroo are great. You're always going to get good results. Mm-hmm. Um, even Lefflers for their Italian leather, fantastic quality. Um, and being in Melbourne, I can literally walk in there and, and hunt through them and pick the best hide out of the lot. Yeah. And that's fantastic that, you know, that's, that's worth paying a premium for their, pro- you know, their prices are higher than, buying online but 
you can literally walk in the door and hunt through the leather and find the best one. Oh yeah, yeah. just just when you something to be said for that. Yeah, it's it makes such a huge difference when you can buy leather in Australia, like because you have to you base pay for something overseas and it's like a, a week's gone by before you get it and yeah, it's yeah, I think you you appreciate it so much more when it's just especially with you like just if it's just not on your doorstep yeah yeah you can literally walk in there and pick it yeah. you know and they'll do same day shipping and stuff too for free yeah which is really good yeah I yeah i've got a lot of time for for them because they've helped me a lot over the over the years yeah um yeah so is it what tips do you use for like for folding leather do you just mainly just wet it with water no, I've never, never wet it. No, never. Um, not even on belt, belt, um, belt. No, if you've split it properly, it doesn't need wetting. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, certain things need wetting. Like, um, if you're trying to do a folded knife sheath, of three mil thick leather, and you want to, you want it folded back on itself, basically, mm-hmm. and you don't want to take too much thickness out of the spine because yeah. you need it to be strong there, then yeah, I'm going to wet it. But for a normal like turned edge on a wallet, things like that, no, mm-hmm. that, that's just getting it thin enough where it will bend Yeah, and, and then using glue to hold it in place. Yeah. Actually, I was going to ask, I should ask, um, that, that green kangaroo long wallet you made, those gussets on the yeah. side, is that... Yeah. Is that a triangle down? Is that how you... Does it go to, like, nothing down the bottom? The leather? No, no, it's fully enclosed. No, no, I mean, like, uh, the gussets on the side, are they... Yeah, uh, yeah. Are they... Because they're not, like, a square gusset. It's nah. It's more of, like, an angled... Yeah, it's tapered. Okay. Tapered from longer at the top and skinnier at the bottom. Yeah. Does that have yep. to go right to the bottom, or can it just go before the bottom... I mean, if you want your coins and stuff to fall out, you could cut it cut it off before the bottom. But yeah. uh, mine goes all the way under. Okay. And it's stitched all the way around. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. It would maybe a bobby pin or something might squeak through the little gap at the bottom, but it's yeah. pretty well sealed. Okay. So, because obviously, tradition um, leather craft is quite mainstream at the moment. Yeah. Uh, compared to like how you learn is there some because uh, you learn very traditionally is there a huge difference between the, obviously there is a bit difference between the two but is there a oh, I'm trying to word the question right yeah because you like you learn more traditionally compared to like mainstream uh, leather work is there a what's the difference between people who are learning leather work now Compared to yeah yeah perfect yeah like that yeah well all right so I think if you're a leather worker now you've never had it better okay in my opinion um, if you will if you're willing to spend the money to learn so nowadays you've got um, well I know of at least three online leatherwork tutorials that you can pay for and if you follow those 
online tutorials and do everything and learn this, practice the skills that they teach, you'll be a far better leather worker than I am. Um, and that's just by paying an online thing. You don't have to go to face-to-face um, -face classes nowadays, which is insane. You know, I wish those services were around three years ago, five years ago, seven years ago. Um, so that's a new thing. But I think a lot of people either don't know about them or aren't willing to spend the money and that, or they're, they're happy with their own level. And, that, you know, so I guess there's a lot of people who are sort of happy to get to a level that's acceptable and then they don't improve. Like, uh, because there is a lot of stuff in the mainstream that's not actually a very high quality. And if you're making a decent wallet, you think your stuff's great because it's better than the mainstream stuff. Um, but there is still room to improve. So I don't know. Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I just want to know, like, so what's wrong with, because you, you, you look, you'll be able to look at a wallet and say, like, that's sort of not as made well compared to, like, I don't know, like, what, yeah, I don't know, I, I, I'm trying to, like, pick your brain as in, like, how could, how, how can you, I tell? Yeah, how can or you like, tell? Like, even though it looks like a really good product, how can you tell that it's been not as... Well, first, the first thing I look at is the thickness of a wallet. Okay. For example. So, I'll see, you know, daily I see too thick, you know, wallets that are just way too thick mm -hmm. every day. Um, unnecessarily thick edges. So let's say you've got, a, you've got a hide of leather that's one mil thick and you just want to make a card holder. You can make that card holder, no problem, with the one mil leather, but just take a bit of time, thin your edges out before you stitch it together. So once it's stitched together, you've just got a nice thin edge and it doesn't look like a brick. It'll still be thicker in the center. That's fine. The edges, I just, I just see these big brick-like edges everywhere, um, and that would not be nice to carry. It wouldn't be good in your pocket, and that's just the first thing I see yeah. regularly. So, number one is thickness. It's generally always too thick, but that's often because it's hard to get leather in the right thickness. So I've got my bell skiver. I'll split all my kangaroo down to 0.4, 0.5mm on the bell skiver wow. and then I'm right to go. So, you know, that, that makes a big difference. And so a lot of it, that is just, I've got the skills to do it so I can do it. And other people, more, they might not even have, have a bell skiver as well. So is, um, there's sort of that, that obstacle. Cause I heard that if you, you shouldn't have your top layer that's you're going to bevel skived is that accurate or can you have like all your pieces skived so for example um like your outer pot yeah so your outer yeah so you're saying that you shouldn't you shouldn't skive your outer um your outer because when you go to bevel it will be too thin to bevel nothing's too thin to bevel okay you can bevel a 0.1 millimeter piece of leather if you if you want, you just use sandpaper. You don't use a beveler. Okay. And 
you can skive any piece of leather. Yeah. If you if you're just as long as that piece of leather has a, enough structure in it that it's going to maintain its integrity, that that's fine. Yeah. Um, just do that, and you'll end up with nice, elegant, thin edges. Yeah. Like, yeah. So for example, my briefcase, right? Every single edge of the briefcase has been skived. Wow. Hundred percent of the edges. So, like where the gussets meet the front panel, um, the edge might be three millimeters or two point five millimeters thick at the edge. But then, if you, you know, put your fingers where the stitching is, or even a little bit further in, that's going to be six mil thick because all the actual thickness of the leather is is back in there, and the stitching picks up most of it. Mm-hmm. But it's tapering towards that edge. Yeah. So that because it's a it's one way to have a fine luxurious looking bag is to have thin edges. Yeah. If you if you've got big fat edges everywhere, it just doesn't look good straight away. Yeah. So even with like when you attach a liner to it, would you would you skive the so just say you have the outer the the liner, would you skive both of them before you glue them or would you glue them Definitely. both? Yeah. Yep, so the linings are skived to zero thickness. Wow. Um my briefcase is a burnished edge rather than edge painted. Yeah. So let's say I was edge painting everything. I wouldn't care about skiving the lining too much. I would just put the linings larger than my panels, cut them off in line with my panels, and then just edge paint over it. Yeah. But because um, linings can't be burnished generally if they're chrome tanned or soft leather like suede, um, they can't be burnished, so I taper them off so that they terminate between the stitching and the edge of the briefcase. Okay, wow. So then, like, how does that look then? If you do, you have like a folded edge then over it. No, 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 because you burn. No, no, things. it's just it's just burnished. So my gusset and my front panel of edge tan, right? Yeah. At the very edge, they're meeting, and that can be burnished. Yeah. You come back two millimeters. You've got. That's where the edge of the um, lining starts. And then you come back another millimetre and a half, and that's where my stitching is. Wow. And you were talking... So my stitching's going through everything, but you can't see this, the lining at the edge. Okay, so you're, even your stitching is going through the, the lining? The lining. Oh, okay, wow. Okay. Yeah, so that's why those briefcases take a lot of time, because you've got to spend all that time skiving everything. Yeah. Exactly, and getting it glued in exactly right. Yeah. Do you use a bell skiver for that? No, I hand wow. hand skive. For bevel skiving, I'll to a, especially to a zero point, I'll hand skive everything. Wow, that's remarkable. And you were taught all that in Hong Kong. Yep. Wow, that's yep. remarkable. Um. So. With uh, so because w- you were saying about uh, I like what you said about if you're with the bridal leather when you if you skive it to like like point eight millimeters that's just you're just removing a lot of the strength. Yep. So ideally, you would have like a you wouldn't go any you wouldn't go any thinner than a one millimeter on like vegetable tan leather like Italian like pleb no. Br- no. butter or whatever it is. 
No. Okay, that's good. No, you're basically removing all the strong stuff. Okay. In the leather yeah. at that point. Yeah. So, you know, I'd be keeping it to... Yeah, one mil would be as thin as I'd go. Okay. You could go thinner, but you're testing it then. Yeah. If, if you just do, do test yourself, just cut strips, split them to, you know, every millimetre and then give them a tug and pull on them and see, you'll you'll know, you'll get to like 0.6 and then you'll pull it and it'll just break. Yeah. And you'll be like, ah. Yeah, okay. That's that's what I would do is if you're concerned about certain leathers, just do tests with your scraps. Yeah. If you've got a, um, a splitter, you can pull it through like a... Um, a bench splitter, just do that. Okay. Oh, I like it. You've made like leather working sound so much more simpler. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> just oh, I don't know. It's it's not rocket science, I guess, but there's so many technical aspects to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot. Yeah, and I mean, my opinion is just my opinion too. So other people might have completely different views on it, and yeah. And that's one of the hard things about leatherwork too is everyone's got an opinion about what's good yeah. and what's not. Um, so yeah, I just, I don't really, I think one thing is I don't look at other people's work unless they're like amazing leather workers and I, I look up to them or something. But generally, I don't actually look at other people's work for inspiration. I just do my own thing. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I don't try and copy anyone. Just come up with my own designs and. So butter, butter, butter is quite easy to scratch. So is that is that even worth? Is it worth using a leather that's easily scratched? Nothing wrong with leather scratching. Okay. The th- the the thing is, as long as the leather is dyed through, which butter is, you can scratch it all you want, and the scratch is going to be the same color. Whereas okay. if you buy a leather where just the surface has been dyed like bridle, you scratch that and the underside is going to be like a light colour coming through. Yeah. You're going to wish you had the butter. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... And anyway, like leather needs a, needs to patina over time, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, otherwise, just go buy a Louis Vuitton bag. Yeah. yeah. Or an Hermes bag that just uses leather with a surface treatment and yeah. it never never ages so i mean i, I like leather leather that can age okay so so okay so even their their in their interiors all means so what do they put for surface treatment it's just like a so i'm not talking well I, I can't speak for like hermes but let's say like gucci bags and stuff like that they use leather that's I think they call it dressed leather. So the surface of the leather will get ground off because it's generally a lower quality hide that they start with. They'll grind that off and then they'll apply like a acrylic paint to it and then they'll use an embossing machine to put a texture into it. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing on the surface looks like the grain of a leather, like the pebbly pattern or... You know, there's millions of prints they put in, like Safiano and Epi and all those embossed prints. And they're all there to hide scratches 
because of the prints and because they've got a thick layer of acrylic, it's almost impossible to scratch. It's fully waterproof. It won't take on any oils from your hands or it's impervious to staining, you know, all that sort of stuff. So they're made to look shiny and made to look shiny for a very long time. Whereas the leathers that you and I use and most leather workers use is natural leather with no surface treatment. So it's it's a porous surface. It can absorb oil. It can absorb moisture. It changes in the sun. Um, it's a... Yeah. So, yeah, that's the difference. Okay. Now, I, I, I like that. I know that the Louis Vuitton, the canvas, isn't even leather. It's like a... Like the, the print that they have. Yeah, the print is all just literally yeah. like literally that printed yeah um it used to be on canvas and now it's just like i was talking about it's the dressed leather just yeah. with a print yeah but they do louis vuitton do use natural leather on the handles and some attachments yeah which will which will patina yeah they look nice when they do yeah so i want to ask you about this so like you're you're against using linen like a linen thread well, I'm not against it. Okay. But I, I no, think we're not against. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um it's not my preference. Okay. And I would rather give my clients something better quality. Okay. That's so, yeah. Do you want me to elaborate? Yeah, just like so. What is a good thread then to? to um. Good... Well, because I was using linen because I was like, oh, it's a natural material. Um. Yep. So, in, in the long run, it's not as good as a polyester. No. Well, so you got to think about it. Let's let's think about it from the from principles, right? Linen thread is from the flax plant. It's the fibres out of the flax plant, right? And you can only have a, a certain length to those fibres. And they're all just twisted up fibres, right? They're cabled. That's what cabling's called. They're just twisted up fibres using some sort of glue to hold it all together. Um, and modern modern practices mean the flax fibres aren't quite as long as they used to be. They're actually getting shorter. Um, Philo chinois or whatever, however you say it, um, is one of the best ones. It's quite good. But they have the nodules like I was talking to you about before the show. Um, before we started talking, the um, the nodules, they're the, the lumps in the thread. And pretty much every roll of thread I've got from them, you get a, you get one of those nodules every two or three metres. And it completely ruins your project when you get to that point and you stitch that in and you've got a fat lump of threads sitting on top of your stitching. It's ruined. So, I mean, it's no good. But getting back to the fibre length, right? So you've got twisted fibres of flax, you pull on it, those fibres are just literally just twisted around each other and you pull on it, they're going to pull past each other and break. When you're talking about polyester thread, you've got continuous fibres of thread that go the entire length of the spool and they're twisted together. So when you're pulling that, you have to break the individual fibres, not just unwrap, not just pull them past each other, they've got to break. And so if you look up the specs of breaking strain of um, linen thread versus polyester, it's phenomenal, the difference. You know, 
polyester wins by a mile. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I'm stitching knife sheaths and things regularly, they need to be pretty well tightly pulled up. And I don't know if you've ever been stitching and had the linen thread just snap on you and you have to unravel the whole thing, start again. I found on the on the thinner thread, it, it, it can break. Yeah. Pretty so, easy. I mean, you're just saving yourself heart, heartache. Yeah. Um, if you can just use polyester, it works. It's You can buy it cabled so it looks like linen. Um, I don't like braided thread. Braided polyester, although it's strong, looks disgusting in my opinion. I wouldn't use it. It doesn't sit right. Um, it's ugly. Yeah. Uh, like I've got tiger thread in the workshop and I'll use that uh, when I need something really, really strong or if it's never going to be seen and I need it really, really strong, I'll use that. Yeah. Because that'll pull a truck. It's so strong. Yeah. Um, but it's disgusting to look at, so I just don't use it. Um, so, you know, yeah, where can cab- you, cable yeah, where, polyester. Yeah, where can you get that cable polyester from? Uh, Is that the get it from? Through? No, so I'll get onto that later, but... Uh, Wuta sell it, so from China, cheap, and it's really good quality. I would recommend Wuta cabled polyester. You can get it in 0.45 and 0.55 mil. Uh, but the better one that I've just bought a batch of is the Macy, and they do it. They do two types of cable polyester. One is Jian. Xiangji, X-I-A-N-G-E, and one is, can't remember what the other one is, but the one starting with X is the better quality one. And it it's sort of like a um, like a matte finish on the thread, and it, it looks much more like linen thread than the other type. The other one looks a little bit plasticky yeah. and has better colours. Uh, so that's where I would get it. There's other ones I know, like Vinimo or something like that. I've never tried it, so I can't comment on it. Um, but I've definitely tried the Wooter and I've tried the Macy, and they're both great. Okay. Um, the Rami thread you mentioned, that's what I was taught with in Hong Kong. Okay. And so Rami is a different plant to flax, but it has longer fibers. Um, so... I actually sat down one day and I untwisted the thread of the linen filo chinois and the rami thread from Japan. And the longest fiber I could find in the filo chinois was like one inch, 25 mil, the absolute longest. And then I pulled apart the rami thread and it was like 17 centimeters, 170 mil long, the individual fiber. So you've got a lot more twists per fibre in rami thread, and it actually has a, has a stronger breaking strain. Yeah. But um, it starts off uh, quite furry, so you need to wax it because it comes completely unwaxed, which is rare. But then you, because it's completely unwaxed, you can dye it any colour you want because um, it only comes in natural from Japan. Yeah. So you can buy all different thicknesses, all in white, 
and if you want to diet, you can diet yourself. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to do that, and it's a it's a great thread if you want to do natural thread. I'd recommend Rami over linen. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have a big sort of following because it's pretty niche. Yeah. But it's what they use in Japan, and it's what I was taught in Hong Kong. And the guy said, like my tutor or whatever, he said, well, he didn't say, but he's he said this is the color you're using for thread. There was no option. It was white thread because that's what he uses on 100% of his projects. Is the, wow. the natu- natural Rami thread? Yeah. So do they in the uh, what's it cable polyester? Does that come in nice colors? Yeah, it comes in every color. Okay. Yep. So because the... it's plas- it's plastic, man. They can dye it any color they want. Yeah. So tips for burnishing. Um, mm-hmm. I'll sort of I'll, I'll tell you like how I burnish just so you can um, add add to it. But um, so I, I'll sort of I'll cut my I'll overcut my leather. So I have like the leather will be uh, I'll cut it four millimeters longer on each side, and then I'll when it once once it's all glued together, I'll cut that four millimeters off and that'll be like a smooth, like you get a completely clean cut edge. So you don't really need to spend much time sanding. Then I'll do a bit of sanding and then it's just simply, I use like a stain, uh, those powder stains that you get from Abbey, Abbey England, and use some token oil and then some beeswax and that's it. Yep. Um, All right. But you, you have like a, do you do well, that sand? straight up? If you finish with beeswax, you're going to get a matte finish edge. Yeah, you're not going to get a shine. Yeah. So, is token oil? Is that should you finish with that, or can you not really? I don't use it. Okay. Um, I only use token oil for its intended purpose, which is just slicking down the suede surface, the flesh side. Okay. You, if if that's going to be visible or seen. Um, you can slick it down using turkinol because it's basically just like a watered-down glue, right? That's, that's all it is. Um, so I don't I don't find that it's any better for edge burnishing than other products. But um, okay. I would sand up to 1,200 grit. That's my highest that I would go because mm-hmm. people will go to 20,000 grit, you know, wow. But the shine doesn't come from how much you polished it. It comes from the waxes that you finish it with. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you ba- 1,200 gets out all the grit, all the scratches on the edge. So you basically can't see any scratches with a vis- with the naked eye at 1,200. Yeah. Um, and then and then that's when you want to start doing your polishing. Okay. From that point, that's when you're adding adding your preferred waxes and polishes. Okay. So do you, would you recommend with like a smooth edge, like from overcutting, could you yep. go straight into 1200 or would you have to like work your way up to nah. it? No, no matter how straight and beautiful you've cut it, it's still <laughs> going to need some sanding Okay. every time. Cause um, there's like internal stresses in leather and as you cut it, that'll be at the surface. It'll shrink or it'll grow or yeah, you just got to smooth it down. Yeah. So at, at bare minimum, you'd want to start on say 400 or 600 
um, at a at a bare minimum from a great cut edge. Start on four hundred or six hundred, and then work your way up to twelve hundred. Wow, just okay. going through going through the grids. Yeah. So, um, and like Columbus wax was that? I'm not yeah. sure if that was. You'd recommend? That's, yeah, that's my recommendation. Yeah. Why? So, what's the difference? Why Columbus wax over beeswax? Is there... Well, Columbus wax is so hard. Um, you hit it with a hammer, it'll sh- it'll shatter and sh- sh- you know go across the room. It's brittle and hard. Beeswax is soft. You can, you know, you can. It's just soft, right? And so, the hardness of the wax that you apply to your edge determines its shine. Mm-hmm. So the harder the, the harder oh, the wax, oh, yep, 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 that it is, the shinier your edge will be. Yeah. Okay. Basically. Um, yeah, because yeah, it's like when I put the when I burnish it with token oil, it's like such a beautiful shine, and I put the beeswax on it, and it just like, ruins it completely. Yeah. It just turns yeah, it yeah. from shine to matte. These are all things that you you have to sort of figure out for yourself because every leather is different too. Yeah. But I can guarantee you, beeswax will make a matte finish edge. Some people like that. That's fine. Um, and it's but it's nice and flexible. And it's water water resistant. It's a great way to finish your edges, like practically. But um, it doesn't give that high level of shine. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Columbus is so hard, it doesn't penetrate the leather very well. So it um, like it gives a great shine, but it doesn't actually protect the edge for very long because it doesn't soak into the leather much, and it's not very water resistant. Yeah, so yeah. while it may give you a great Instagram photo with the shine, you haven't actually protected the edge very well. Yeah, and so you gotta you gotta find a compromise, and that's what I've been uh, working on a lot lately is making my own wax blend. Yeah, uh, from a whole series of different waxes that actually gives me good penetration. Yeah, but high shine. Okay. Could you could you put beeswax and then put Columbus wax on top of that? You can, um, but you need to basically put the beeswax in, melt it in, and then sand it all off again. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, you need you need some sort of surface for the Columbus to t- adhere to. Yeah. Do the different um, do the different colors of the Columbus wax? Does that matter? Like, is it like if we, if you use the black on it? Yeah, a... they're useless. Okay. The just... coloured ones. Just use the plain. Okay. Um, yeah. What was I going to say? Uh... If you want an edge to be a certain colour, dye it and then wax it. Yeah, do you do you dye it? Oh, yeah, I assume you'd, you'd dye it. Like, you'd just use an alcohol base or something like that. Or a water, yep. water yep. base. Like, you know, you've got your Instagram tools that look good. If you were, I don't know, if you, if there was someone like I guess out there starting yeah. the craft, how would, what would you, your advice on tools be? Because um, there's like well, a... what I would recommend, uh, pretty much straight away, is go to a cheap Chinese manufacturer first. Um, go to Wuta. Get all your pricking irons or, uh, sorry, that's. They're not the best. Look, that I've had breakage issues with teeth. 
um, from Wooter, but you're generally going to be pretty right. Like I've had plenty of them that worked fine for a long time, but they're so cheap. It doesn't matter if they break is basically how it is. And they're, they're a really good quality for how cheap they are. So you go there for all your basics, go to just cheap Chinese stuff pretty much. Don't care. Yeah. If you care about what your tools look like, you care about the wrong things. Care about craftsmanship, you know, and getting better at your hand skills. Mm-hmm. That's what you should be caring about, not um, not what your tools look like or what your logo looks like. Yeah. What, a, like, what tools would you would you need to be expensive, or could? Um, like skiving blades. Um, no. Nah. No. I use a I use a five pound skiving knife from GEO Barnsley and Son. Mm-hmm. It do, it does everything. Um, it's five pound. Yeah, it's just they come dull as anything out of the box. You got to sharpen them, but they've got a great um, geometry to the edge. The the flexible blade, really yeah. really good. Um, no, I mean like for a for a hammer, you don't need anything but a block of wood. Get yourself a piece of pine. That's your hammer. Yeah. You don't need to spend you spend money on a brass faced nylon handle with mahogany this and who cares? It doesn't need to be that. You're hitting you're hitting a metal tool, so you need something soft, just use a piece of wood. Pretty much everyone starting leatherwork in Japan just uses a block of wood. Wow. Yeah, that's all you need. And right now I'm using a really simple wooden mallet that my mate turned out of a piece of wood. It looks like a little mini baseball bat, basically. Yeah. And yeah, took him five minutes to make. That's all you need um, for hammers. For like the pricking irons, right? If you want the best, you got to spend a lot of money. So like my opinion, the best is Amy Roke. I just think they're fantastic. And I always get the best stitching results with them. Mm-hmm. Um but they're 160 US dollars per wow. pricking iron for the largest size, which is crazy. So yeah. when you when you're buying full sets, yeah, you know, you're spending big bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, but that's for the best of the best. Um, one thing, if you're going to get a bell skiver, I'm speaking from personal experience you might as well buy a good brand rather than buying a cheap brand. So I bought um, a Chinese one three years ago for 1700 bucks, brand new with a motor, with a bench. And yeah, it's just been playing up a lot lately. Um, things just break on it that shouldn't be breaking. Um, the castings are all really low quality and then there's no after-sales support. Um, you buy parts off the shelf that should fit it and they just don't because it's just the tolerances are all out. Just go and buy like a Japanese one, like Nippy, or um, if you can find a second-hand one in in Australia, Marshall was a great brand made in Australia. They're still around if you can find them. Um, And Fortuna is the creme de la creme. 
uh, if you can find them, which I luckily just did last week. I found a second-hand Fortuna, and that's going to be my new skiving machine. Is it harder to find parts for the Australian ones? Well, every part for skiving machines should be interchangeable okay. in theory. Yeah. So every every skiving machine that was made was modelled on the Fortuna. Okay. That's what I, that's what I've been told. So, so Fortuna came out with a design a hundred years ago, or more, and ever since everything has been modelled on that. Okay. So there'll there'll be slight variations between brands for certain parts that aren't essential. But like a knife, a presser foot, um, all your all your essential parts should be interchangeable. Yeah. Between brands. Wow. So you don't have to worry too much about what brand you get as long as it's a good quality one. Yeah. Is is that ele- that's a, oh that'd be electric one the one you got before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah, you, uh, you were talking about pneumatic ones earlier. That's only for huge scale industrial setups. Oh, I was thinking of like how they do it back in the day. Did they even have like? Electricity? Well, back in the day, it would have been running off a central belt in the factory. Yeah. And that could have been a steam engine. Um, yeah. that was that was originally how they did it yeah one big steam engine running a big shaft running down the center of the factory and then they'd have belts running off to machines from that yeah it's like what you see at like the at like the show you see like the track like the the pulleys yeah it's like and it's like the belts just like, like yeah. as it's going like around yeah yeah and they use leather belts and stuff too oh really I didn't oh okay yeah. I thought it was rubber yep yeah uh, so tips to go full time. Well, actually, first off, is there a lot of when you were of leather workers in Japan? Like, was it a in, in Hong Kong? Was there was it a huge market or not really? Yeah, I think like when I when I was hunting around Hong Kong, look, like thinking to start my own business and looking for someone, there was heaps of people doing leather work there. Yeah, it was it was already really taking off for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, there were plenty, plenty of people doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know tips if you wanted to go full time, how would you tips? All right. Yeah. Um, probably think about it a bit more than I did. Don't just jump into it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I wasted so much money and lost a lot of money and, um, I'm still trying to earn all that money back. Yeah, you think about it. Um, come up with a sort of direction as to where you want to go. Do a business plan. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, a big tip for me, for me, would be get a website. Set up a proper website. Um, so, my website, for example, is just photos of stuff I've done previously and a contact page. Mm-hmm. Bit of, and a little bit about me as well, but I get ninety percent of my work through my website because people Google Leatherwork Melbourne, whatever. I pop up, they have a look at some pictures, they go, "Oh, that's good quality." I'll give them a message, and that's that's where you're going to get most of your work from. So don't be concerned about Instagram. On Instagram, if you're making leatherwork, your followers are going to be all leatherworkers. Yeah. They're not going to be clients. Yeah. So. I think you'll notice that as well, is that the only people following you are cl- uh, other leather workers just looking at what you're doing, mm-hmm. and 
and it's very hard to market anything to other leather workers because they're not going to want to buy anything because they can make it themselves. Yeah. So that's what Instagram is. It's I've definitely got work through Instagram, so like don't discount it, but it's not it's not the be all and end all. Yeah. Facebook's pretty bad as well. It's it seems to be a lot of people who don't want to spend the money shop on Facebook. Um, so it's if you're selling high end stuff, it's probably not a good market. Mm-hmm. Definitely have a have lots of savings because you're going to eat through them. Mm-hmm. Whatever whatever you think it's going to cost you to set up the business, double it um, because you're going to have really extended periods of time where you're not earning money or you don't get orders or or you pro- let's say you're prototyping. You prototype for a couple of weeks. That's two weeks of wages you need to supplement with your own savings. Um, yeah, it's hard and I definitely thought about going part-time. Mm-hmm. There were times where I was just not earning any money, losing money, running running dry on savings and I thought I'm going to have to go part-time but I, I stuck it out and all that time I would have spent like at a part-time job I spent on my leather making it better and and it's all paid off now like I'm doing quite well and my my business is starting to really flourish and yeah but it's only because I sort of committed and that's probably one thing one thing you got to do is just if you're going to go full time go yeah. full time you got to commit yeah how long were you struggling for until it really started to flourish probably like 18 months yeah like that's almost how much you'd need to have in savings 18 months of living you know Mm -hmm. behind you to support you through that period you're going to have money coming in right you're going to sell the odd things but it's not going to you're barely going to be covering your rent you're going to be you know it's it's never going to be enough initially you got to build that name and that trust, that trust, you know, so it's, yeah. it's definitely a hard slog. Yeah. For sure. But, you know, if you can, if you can be working another job that's in, and then in your part-time, in your spare time, develop your skills, uh, get some good marketing going, and then you might be able to hit the ground running a bit better than what I did. Um, so, yeah, mine's probably a pretty poor example of how to start a business, but yeah. No, well, I, I think it's like the, it's a good reality check, you know, yeah. I, I like it because it's, it's easy to, if you're successful to be like, oh yeah, like, you know, you can come be successful just like me, but you forget like the 18, like you forget about the savings, <laughs> the rent, the, yeah, like, oh, the it's a killer. like I'm a sparky by trade, right? Yeah, I could have just stayed working as a Sparky, and I could be a couple of hundred grand ahead of where I am right now. Yeah, but where's the fun in that? You know? mm. No, no, I, I think it's a it's a good uh, uh, it's a good piece of advice because you know what you is what you see on YouTube and Instagram. It is like just a little, and those pretty pictures and pretty videos. Like, it's, there's a reality behind that we don't see. Yeah, yeah, and you got to be com- 
committed to it 24-7 too. Like, first thing I do when I wake up is I answer emails. Yeah. And that might be an hour and a half of answering emails or wow. messages I got through the night from overseas or whatever and dealing with suppliers and dealing with clients and yeah. back and forth emails about upcoming orders or quoting or, yeah. and then dealing with invoicing. and Yeah. You've got so much background stuff yeah. that you got to do as well. You got to be prepared to put in for that as well. It's not just the making. The yeah. making is just one little part. Yeah. Actually, I'll ask you that. So, what's your work schedule? Like, how do you, what do you work during the day? Um, well, luckily now I'm working in my backyard, so <laughs> I don't have a commute anymore, which is amazing. And um, I've got an office inside the house and I've got a side garage, which is my dirty workspace. So, working from home is just awesome. If you can do it, if you can find a place big enough suitable yeah but my work days like start work at eight um roughly have one little break for lunch and then i might stop again at six something like that for dinner and then if i need to do any work after that i generally call it call it quits then but if i if i need to i'll go out and do a bit more work but yeah and I just do that five days. I force myself to have weekends because it's very easy to work six days, seven days a week, and then you've just ruined your life. You got to yeah. have a you got to have a work life balance. Yeah. So I try not to. Once I've finished work, I don't. I try not to think leather work. I try not to do anything leather related on weekends. Yeah. Because it's work now. It's not a hobby. Yeah. I've got to I've got to put it to the side. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, pretty much. So you got to you got to have that separate life. Whereas yeah. if you're part time and a hobbyist, you might love doing it on weekends because it gets you away from thinking about your day job. Mm-hmm. But for me, this is my day job now. So you got to actually separate it a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, Do you get like when you have because cause you can't, you know, you're not pumping out the orders, like rack them and stacking them. <laughs> yeah. Does And you have like clients. Does that sort of stress you out that you have? Because it's only you doing it by yourself. Hmm. Is, how do you deal with that? And because it's, it's high expectations, but it's not like you can like stuff up a stitch. Like your customer, no. your clients, want, yep. they want two grand's worth of leather good, like a product. Yeah. So, well, however much you charge. Yeah, well, it's stressful for sure. Yeah. And and that's why you need that time off because, yeah, like you, if you spend three weeks making something, you cannot afford a single error. Like one mistake could send you back to the start. You know, so you've got to really be on your, on your game especially like that briefcase I did was three weeks and it was natural veg tan. So I had to prevent getting a fingerprint or a stain on that thing for three weeks working on it. And so that's stressful. Um, But generally clients are happy to invest the money if they've seen your previous work is high quality. Mm -hmm. Um, And and they know that that's what they're going to get, but that puts the pressure on you. You have to, 
perform. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, you have to present them with something at the end that is just phenomenal. You can't have a stitch out of place. You can't have anything wrong. So you've got to be hard on yourself. And if you do make a mistake, don't try and hide it. Start again. Wow, just, okay. I like that. Just, yeah, you, you, you just, you don't, um, don't cling to your mistakes because you spent a long time making them. That's that's a good piece of advice. Yeah. Um, if you if you do something, and it's going to be obvious to the client um, that you've tried to cover something up, just start again. Yeah. If it it's um it's very hard to earn a good reputation, but very easy to lose one. Yeah. So. Every single little thing you put out is your reputation. So mm-hmm. just do the best you can. Yeah. So has there been a point where like you've been doing something and you've got like you've had to redo the whole thing over again? Um Yeah. Yeah. Uh like watch straps? Definitely. Like I've been edge painting, got a bit of edge paint on the surface. Too bad. Start again. Um, What else? Uh, Wallet. I've had to redo. Same thing. Edge paint. Yeah. Why why edge paint? Because is it because does it crack? Like, will it crack on bending or? Yeah, it does. And so let's say you're doing a wallet and you edge paint the hinge. That'll come back in six months, cracked, almost every time. Mm-hmm. Especially if you do it thick, thinner the edge paint, the less it'll crack. So do on wear points like that, like bending points, do it as thin as you can. Um, if you do it thicker, it'll just bend. Uh, it'll just crack. So anything coming back to me for repairs and anything with edge paint will end up needing it. Yeah. So I, yeah, don't recommend. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes you have to use it just purely because of the project um, and not everyone's budget can include turned edges on every edge, right? So yeah, turned edges just take a lot more time, but in my opinion, they're the best way to finish an edge possible. So, But you know, don't, don't they crack, just, like, aren't they easy to wear because they're... It's leather. Okay. It's the same. It's going to wear just the same as every other bit of leather on the wallet. Okay. Um, you know, a burnished edge is only going to last a certain amount of time because it's just, you've just polished the rough suede. That's going to bend. It's going to start going fuzzy eventually. And you're going to need to redo it, whereas the turned edge is actually the surface of the leather. Mm-hmm. And unless you wear through that leather, that's going to be looking good. How how long, how, how thin do you have to to skive it, to fold it over? Depends on what you're doing. Um, Just like a wallet? Let's say a wallet uh, card slot. I I turn every edge of the card slots, right? Yeah. Um, And I think that's the best way and everyone should do that because if you're putting a card in and out, it's going to have a sharp edge. And if it's a burnished edge or a cut edge or an edge painted edge, it's going to get torn up. Yeah. So, all right, a card slot, let's say a card slot's a 0.6 mil, 0.7 mil. I'd be thinning that to 
0.4, something like that. As long as there's a step um, at the point of turnover um, and the the skived bit needs to be tapered to zero so that once it's folded over, there's no transition in thickness. It's just seamless. Wow. But yeah, it's like you think you know stuff about leather work and then you... <laughs> I'm just a beginner too. Yeah. I'm only three I'm only three years into this full time. Yeah. With the skiving it should be like yes, oh yeah, so it should be a step. Yeah, not like a angled No. Okay. For a turned edge it should always be a step. Yeah. Because that's that's what's giving you a pivot to turn over. Wow, okay. So on like a pocket, how 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 longer do you have to make that pocket before you like a T pocket before you f- I generally add about ten mil. Okay. So thanks, Martin, for uh, for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem.